uh, and then I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to invite Patty up to speak to us. Um, Father, please speak to us through your word um, this afternoon. Uh, please speak through Patty faithfully uh, and help him to um, yeah, reveal to us your will for our life. Amen. So, Matthew 13, pull it up on your phones, pull your Bible out, BibleGateway.com. Matthew 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no roots, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I will heal them. The blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, Many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but uh, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed a good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seeds in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? 
But he said, No. Left in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burnt. But gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a leaven, leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden up in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a nest that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from them. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is, this not, is his mother called Mary? And are his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Uh, once again, welcome to the meeting. Thank you for joining us. Join 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 us.
Uh, I've realised that my talk is actually a lot longer than it probably should be, so I'm going to talk fairly quickly, and I've got slides to go with it as well. Uh, isn't it great we can read 56 verses of the scriptures publicly? Isn't that fantastic? If you're sitting there going, my goodness me, this is a jolly long reading, when will it end? And I politely encourage you to rebuke yourself um, and say, praise be to God that we can actually have a public reading of scripture on the campus. Okay? Uh, one of the things we've been looking at over, these, uh, over last week, this week and next week is this topic, worth it, is it actually worth Jesus, is it worth following Jesus, is it worth listening to Jesus and is it worth trusting Jesus and today we're going to spend some time looking at whether or not in chapter 13 it's actually worth listening to Jesus. So here's my first question, what is it that you listen to, what, what voices do you listen to, what are you attracted to in those voices, why is it that they cause you to listen is it the sort of uh, the voice that just appeals to be more attractive than what your current life journey is on? How seriously do you take these voices when you listen to them? Uh, it's the voice of the media or the celebrity or your classmates or your teachers or your, the person speaking at the front of public meeting or the Word of God or... And my question is, how have you changed as a result of listening to all of these things? How are you changing as a result of all of these things? Do you ever stop and reflect on the way in which you're changing as a result of how you listen to the Word of God. Or perhaps you're not actually listening to the Word of God and so you're starting to notice your life changing in a way that is not as desirable. What are the voices that you're listening to and how are you changing? Now, the mode of communication that is speaking reveals something about the manner in which we acquire information and also the manner in which we relate to one another. If you've been in relationships either within family units or within peers where there's not a lot of speaking going on, a lot of the time you're going, I have no idea what's going on. I can't read your mind. Please open your mouth. Communicate with me. But what is it that speaking and listening does? It conveys knowledge. It builds relationship. It's a community activity. It's a giving and receiving. And when we speak, we reveal things about ourselves. We show ourselves to others. Now, sometimes this is knowledge that others might already be familiar with. But on other occasions, it's knowledge that is only made possible by us speaking. It's only possible for you to know certain things about me if I actually reveal them to you, if they're not immediately observable by what you see of me or by the way in which you see me act. And so it is with God. It is like that with us because we are made in the image of God. We are his creation. We know things about God from the manner in which he acts in the world, both through things like common grace, he provides food and rain and shelter, and through particular actions, recorded for us in the Old Testament. But more particularly, more explicitly, we know things about God because of his speech. As he reveals himself and his nature and his character in and through his words, we gain an ever-increasing knowledge about God. If you start reading your Bible at Genesis and work your way through the end of the Old Testament, you will know more about God at the end of the Old Testament than you say you've stopped at Genesis chapter 11. And specifically, as we read through the whole of the Bible, we see that God has chosen particularly, specifically, to reveal his fullness in the person of Jesus. And so today we're going to sort of zero in one particular aspect of this as we look at Matthew 13. You really would if you've got a copy of the passage open in front of you. Because in Matthew 13, there are actually eight parables. I don't know if you picked up, there are eight parables. Uh, two of them are about listening to Jesus, and six of them are about what the kingdom of heaven is like. So I'm going to work our way through this passage. 
Uh, this is what Matthew 13 looks like in overview. Before you furiously scroll all that down, I'm about to give you another screen. Uh, this is really the way in which it's broken up. You've got the parable of the sower. You've got this question about why we have parables and then they're explained. Then you've got this collection of three parables, the weeds, the mustard seed and the leaven. Then you come back and you have another explanation about why we have parables. The parables are explained and then you have the treasure, the pearl, the net and the... So because that doesn't make a lot of sense, let's try and look at it in this way. Uh, the two parables that sort of match up are the sower and the master at the end because they're parables about how we understand Jesus. Then there's two sets of three parables, the weeds, the mustard seed and the leaven, and these parables talk about the significance of the kingdom. And then there's three other parables, the treasure, the pearl and the net, which talk about the worth of the kingdom. So for the next little while we're going to try and work our way through this particular passage using that particular structure. Uh, the six parables in their two sets of three each have a fairly common formula to them. Uh, with the exception of one of them, all that depends a bit on the way in which you translate it, they're all used by this little phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. In one of them it says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, but uh, this is a fairly similar structure. Two of the parables, the sower and the master, do not use that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. So I take it that those two are referring not to the kingdom of heaven and what the kingdom of heaven is like, but actually the way in which we respond to the words of Jesus. That's why I've grouped them together. So let's consider the parables in turn and try and work out what we learn from them. Let's start with the parable of the sower in verses 3 to 9. Uh, the top image there is the way in which we farm in modern day uh, agrarian, in our modern day agriculture. Uh, it's very mechanised. Uh, we try and farm on large scales for small costs. But the use of the illustration that Jesus uses when he talks about the one who goes out to sow the field is much more akin to what we see in the bottom right hand picture there, where you actually have an individual who would go out and scatter seed by hand. Just in case you can't really see the images. Oh, yeah, there goes. That might be a little bit more helpful for you. So in verses 3 to 9, I'm not going to reread the parable, but if you've got it open in front of you, uh, let me make some comments. It's an illustration that all of Jesus' hearers would have been very familiar with. As you walked around Palestine in sowing the season, it would not have been uncommon to see people out in the field scattering the seed. Now for the sower, the key activity of sowing was actually to produce future life. The key activity of the sower was to produce future life in a two-fold sense. Firstly, the act of sowing seed in receptive soil created life, the life of the plant. But at the same time, because the reason why they sowed was for consumption upon harvest, these plants also created life for the one who would eat or sell the crop later. See, the job of the sower is twofold to create in receptive soil future life. The sower here in our illustration appears to have what you might say is complete autonomy as to where they sow the seed, which by ancient times is actually quite unusual. Let me try and explain. And so at this point when Jesus talks about the sower going out to sow his seed and talking about all these different types of the soil, Jesus' hearers would have been at one point quite confused because seed in the ancient days was quite a precious commodity. It was the means by which you were almost guaranteed, notwithstanding the weather and the climate, future life. You used seed wisely and carefully. Some of it was sowed in the immediate season, some of it may have been stored in the future season. If you were a good farmer, you read the seasons carefully, you prepared your field as best as you could, 
to try and maximise the yield that your often limited seed would hopefully produce. And yet in the illustration that Jesus uses, where does the sower sow? The sower is willing to sow liberally, expansively, arguably almost anywhere. The seed falls on the road, on the rocky ground, on a place where thorns grow, on soil which is shallow and on good soil. It's not just within his field. It's not in strict rows, so the crop might be more easily harvested. <coughs> Interesting to note when you look at the illustration, the seed appears to be the same for each type of soil. It's not as if upon finding rocky ground, the sower goes, oh, I know what sort of seed I'll use. I'll use the seed that works really well on rocks. And when he finds good soil, he goes, I've got this different type of seed that... No, it's a seed which will, upon germination and under the right conditions, produce a crop ready for harvest. Jesus here will also recognise that as one goes out to sow seed, it is out of the control of the sower if it actually grows. They would have known that they are thoroughly dependent upon God for producing the right climate and the rain. The sower, despite all of their best efforts to actually sow the seed, cannot actually make it rain. The very thing needed to germinate the seed and cause it to grow. However, the role of the sower is to sow generously and widely in this illustration. Keep in mind here, before we move to an explanation, that for the sower that plants, growth itself is not ultimately the desired outcome. That it produces a crop is the desired outcome. We do well to remember the distinction here. The sower is not going out to plant grass, a lawn which will look nice. They're not going out to plant an ornamental garden so they can sit back and aesthetically just enjoy it for all of their days. No, actually, they're going out to plant something that ultimately will produce food, a plentiful crop. So what does this parable mean? It's explained for us a little bit later on. But before we understand it, we need to first understand why Jesus himself speaks in parables. And so we turn now to this section in verses 10 to 17 and verses 34 to 35. The question that I think his disciples would have asked Jesus is, why are you not being clear? Just tell us about the kingdom. Notice here this is the question the disciples ask him in verse 10. Why do you speak in parables? When Jesus speaks in parables, he speaks because in verse 11 following, to some the secrets of the kingdom have been given, and yet to others it has not. Notice what's going on here in this particular section. For the ones who have been included in the kingdom of God, they will be able to understand the parable. For those who have not been included, the parable speaks a message of judgment. It shows people that they are outside of the kingdom, that they don't understand what's going on. Jesus also speaks in parables here because it fulfills what Isaiah prophesied will take place. The quote there from verses 14 to 15 is from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah was sent to the nation of Israel to explain to them the coming judgment and year of jubilee of God. We looked at that last week. Interestingly, Isaiah speaks this message and Jesus is doing the same thing. What the offer that Jesus is making is confirming those who have been included in the kingdom. And just as the people of Israel rejected Isaiah's message, the same thing will happen with the words of Jesus. 
Now the blessing, I take it, that comes to the immediate group of disciples, and if you like, derivatively to us, as the current recipients of the kingdom, is that they, in verses 16 and 17, are blessed. Because they understand the kingdom, and they understand the one who speaks of it. They see and understand Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one who was to come, that we saw in Matthew chapter 11. This Messiah is worth listening to when he speaks. Jesus is worth listening to. So the pause and consideration for us now is, if you, as an individual, understand these parables, be joyfully thankful. Friend, you are included in the kingdom of heaven. Give thanks that Jesus has chosen to reveal himself to you. That which was hidden for generations, the quote in Isaiah in verses 34 and 35, before Jesus, you and I have the wonderful privilege of rightly knowing and understanding. Because we understand who Jesus is, this side of his death and resurrection. When we speak about the parables, it's worth remembering the whole parable as we're about to investigate them, not just the immediate object of the parable. So, for example, the kingdom of heaven is described in the whole story, not just in the first object that's being talked about. So, the kingdom of heaven is not like a grain of a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is not like a net. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that when someone in the field is, and do you understand? Don't just think that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, or a net, or leaven. Now, I have to try and reduce it to treasure pearl, net, leaven, mustard, leaven. But we need to understand the whole story that's being used. So let's see how we go at understanding the parables. Okay? The first group of parables, which are about the sower and the master, are about how we understand the kingdom. Okay? Now we know the parable, we've made some observations about it, we've looked at why Jesus speaks in parables, now let's seek to try and understand these two parables, which are about understanding the kingdom. Jesus recognises there are different responses to his word as it goes forth from him. For some who are like the soil cast on the path, the word of Jesus is taken away before they can even receive it, before they can understand it. For others, the word is received with great joy, but those individuals do not last. Uh, verse 20, so on the rock and ground, they hear the word and immediately receive it with joy, but they have no root in themselves, endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises, on account of the word that which they heard and received initially, what happens? Immediately they fall away, verse 21. Thirdly, we see the different response to Jesus. Some are unfruitful, because while they receive the word of Jesus, when the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth come upon them, i.e. they're crowded out, in a metaphorical sense, by the weeds, they no longer bear any fruit. And fourthly, the other type of response is that people actually, upon hearing the word of God, are fruitful and produce a harvest or a crop. Did you notice the little vision there in verse 23 of how Jesus explains what's going on in the fourth soil? In verse 23 it says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, and understands it. That phrase is only used of the fourth soil. It's not used of the first three soils. 
So here we see Jesus telling us, for those who had an ears to hear, that there are lots of different responses to the Word of God as it goes forth from Him. I suspect we see that in our own experiences. Perhaps in our own lives as to how we've responded differently when we've listened to Jesus. Perhaps we see it in the lives of others. Maybe those in our family, some who we went through school with and some now who we're at university with. We may be able to say, I know of people who accepted the word of Jesus but now would not call themselves Christians. Perhaps it's because they responded like the second soil. They received it with joy but have no root and they've withered. Perhaps even now at this early arguably stage in life, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, have meant that their claim to following Jesus will not produce any tangible fruit. I think the question here as we hear the words of Jesus is this. As you reflect on how you have responded to Jesus, have you been the good soil? Because that's the soil that Jesus wants us all to be. He wants us to respond by rightly hearing and understanding and then producing a crop. At the moment in your life, are you demonstrating that you're the fourth soil? Likewise, the short parable right at the end of the section in verses 51 to 52 about the master and treasure is about Jesus asking his disciples, have you understood all these things? Which is why I take the parable of the sower and the parable of the master and the treasure go together. Now, I'm not sure I can work out exactly what Jesus is talking about in this parable. So if you have some enlightened understanding, please come and share it with me. I'm not quite sure why he uses the word scribe, for example, in the ESV. Why he doesn't use the word follower or disciple or... To me, that would make more sense. So praise God that I wasn't the one who was writing. Okay? I think it may be a reference to some sort of replicating or copying, which is one of the roles that the scribes carry out, in which case you would seek to understand it to say one who sort of, it may also be a teaching role that the scribes had in the early first century. But what does it mean when he talks about an old and a new treasure being brought out? Well, my current thinking on this that Jesus is saying, of those who understand the parables, because I think this little section is to Jesus' disciples, that as his disciples, their role is to now teach and pass on what they've received from Jesus. And they will bring into the kingdom those from both the old and the new covenant. Both those who are Jews ethnically and those who are Gentiles. Come talk to me about that afterwards, if you've got that explanation. So let's now look and see the significance of the kingdom. When we look at actually the parable of the weeds, mustard seed, the leaven, and then how these parables are actually explained. So in telling these three parables, Jesus what would have been, uh, Jesus used what would have been common everyday practices. The planting of a field, the use of mustard for the cooking and flavouring, and the use of leaven, which is just yeast, not another word for yeast, in making bread. Now all three of these deal with the notion of separation and insignificance. And for all three of these parables, they're, if you like, somewhat subversive. The images that Jesus uses are unexpected and not quite what Jesus' first hearers would have thought. So let's take the parables sort of one at a time and work our way through them reasonably quickly. Uh, take the parable of the weeds. The reference to the weeds in sort of verses 25, 27 and 29 are uh, most likely a reference to an undesirable weed that looked a lot like wheat. 
Um, it's, a, it's a modern day equivalent of it, which is over here on the right. And you can see that at sort of first glance they do look quite similar. If you saw a field of these two from a distance, it would actually be hard to discern what is the wheat and what is the weed. The weed itself, sometimes called darnel, actually has a poisonous seed to it. So if you take the seeds and sort of grind them up and eat them, it'll make it fairly sick. So for a while, these two crops appear relatively indistinguishable. It's really only at the time of seeding that the servants notice the difference between the wheat and the weeds. Now normally, logically and sensibly, you wouldn't sow them together. It's just that you wouldn't do it. Okay? Seeds will be dangerous, sort of both prior to the harvest, once the seeds are budded. Keep in mind that at times some people on occasion might walk through your field. And if they're feeling hungry, they will just pluck some seeds to eat along the way. Jesus and his disciples do it on a couple of occasions. Imagine if you'd intentionally sowed a poisonous weed in your field. You go out one day and there's some bodies lying in and around your head. You should have put up a sign, warning, poison. You can't tell you which one is. So clearly this is on the mind of the enemy that have come in to try and poison the man's field. So his servants have sold a good growth. But here, well, normally farmers wouldn't plant these two things together. So what do we make of the parable? I take it Jesus' main point about the parable, as explained in verses 36 to 43, is it's about the end time. It's about the time when this separation will come between the righteous and the unrighteous. But as the master who said to his servants, we will not separate them until that harvest day. In the same way that Jesus is saying at the moment, this day we do not know sometimes who the righteous and who the unrighteous are. But there is this notion of separation. Another preacher who I read said that this particular parable helps us see that there is more uncertainty about the present than we would like there to be. There is more uncertainty about the present than we'd like there to be. It's much the same way you look out on a field and you always like a field of wheat. You sort of get a bit closer and you go, I think there's wheat and there's this other thing that's... I'm just not sure. Actually, I'm not going to eat either of them yet. Now, on one hand, I think the preacher's right, but at the same time, I don't fully agree. Partly because when the parable is rightly understood, it actually gives me a clearer understanding of what's going on in the world. Yes, it appears from the outset that we're, just, we're less certain about perhaps who the righteous and who the unrighteous are, but actually if I understand the parable rightly, I ought to know that in the world there are righteous and unrighteous. That the day of judgment is not yet, that I might not be able to discern the difference between the two, but that God will that he does discern the difference between the two, and on the last day, a judgment will take place. So next, the parable of the mustard seed planted in the field. Now, in ancient times, the mustard seed, in some senses, was of fairly little significance. It was a commonly occurring plant. It just sort of grew fairly regularly and fairly wildly, and mustard was used frequently. So you wouldn't actually go out of your way to plant a mustard seed in the ground. Because if you needed some mustard, just walk out the back and grab some. Okay? So you see why Jesus is using this image that he's used to sort of go, who plants mustard seeds? They're everywhere. And you wouldn't intentionally plant it in your field because it would basically take over all of the other crops. No one in their right mind planted mustard seeds. Interestingly, it grows more like a bush rather than a tree. Okay? The mustard seed should have actually, in people's right minds, been kept separated from the rest of your seeds and plants. 
and it actually doesn't turn into a big tree. So what does Jesus mean when he describes the kingdom of God like a mustard seed that's planted in a kingdom, in a garden? Because if he wanted to use an illustration about the kingdom being like a tree, he could have used something about a great cedar, referencing, say, the cedars of Lebanon from Ezekiel. Now, what Jesus here is saying is that the outcome of the planting is of such significance, significance from such insignificant beginnings, who plant mustard seed, that many will then come and actually benefit from it. And then take the parable of the yeast or the leaven in the bread. The subversive idea here is that throughout the Old Testament, leaven in bread is generally considered to be a sign of uncleanness. It wasn't something that the people of Israel were encouraged to do, to put leaven into bread. Punishment actually resulted by being separated from the people of God if leaven was in bread. So to the Jew who's standing there going, actually, this guy's talking about putting leaven into bread, what's going on? That just seems a little bit unusual. The people also, upon hearing the parable, would have known full well that once leaven gets into bread, it's tiny, it's granular. Once someone gets into a loaf of dough of bread, he can't get rid of it. It just sort of spreads and infiltrates and almost infects the whole batch of dough. So what do we make of these three parables of the weeds, the mustard seed and the leaven? Well, the three parables tell us something about the kingdom that Jesus offers. And we're able to understand the kingdom because we hear it from Jesus' lips. We see here that the kingdom of heaven at times appears insignificant. Like a weed. What's significant about a weed? Like a small seed or a pinch of yeast. But yet the impact that the kingdom makes is often all-encompassing. And despite its seemingly insignificant origin, the reach of the kingdom is vast. We also see the kingdom of heaven in its coming has a subversive nature to it, which is why I take it Jesus uses illustrations that are just a bit subversive. The words of Jesus, the coming of the kingdom, actually overturns and subverts the existing cultural and religious expectations about what people thought when they thought about the coming of the kingdom. And thirdly, we see here that the kingdom will have a day of judgment, a day of separation, when the good and the evil will be held to account for their nature, for who they are. So that's about the significance of the kingdom. Now we turn to the next three parables, the worth of the kingdom in this section, where we look at the treasure, the pearl and the net. For many of Jesus' day, their existence was a fairly day-to-day one. They lived fairly much sort of hand-to-mouth, and particularly those who want to follow Jesus. They're not the well-off, they're not the rich, they're the crowd and often the poor. So when Jesus talks about finding a treasure of great value, he would have had the ears and attention of all of his hearers. For such a thing, a treasure, a pearl, or a net full of every kind of fish, would have been something that could have sustained them potentially and their families for a very long time. Or it would have been something which they then would have been able to sell to maintain their basic daily subsistence existence. Now in the two parables of the treasure and the pearl, interestingly both finders consider that what they have found to be of such great value, such great worth, 
that they are prepared to sell everything they have to acquire that one thing. Uh, Notice also here the similarity between these two. The kingdom of heaven is worth giving up everything to receive. And notice also the difference. My thanks to Mark Ashley for pointing this out to me. In one case, the treasure is discovered accidentally. Almost as if the man is walking through the field and just stumbles across it. In the parable of the pearl, the treasure is sought after intently. Both, in this case, one who stumbles on the treasure and one who searched for it intently, realise the great worth of what they've found. And interestingly, probably both of these parables don't need any form of explanation. Now, the parable of the net is slightly different. In fact, it's a bit more like the parable of the weeds that we looked at earlier. Here, in this case, with the parable of the net, the catch is large and all-encompassing. The net arguably reaches its capacity and from every different type of fish. And just like in the parable of the weeds, there is a time of sorting, a separating, and the bad are thrown away. And so as Jesus explains the parable, he tells us that the kingdom of heaven is like the fish being sorted. It's people being judged. The evil and the righteous going through a process of separation in verse 49. The parable here helps us see that there is more certainty to the future than we would like there to be. We'd like a bit of ambiguity. But actually there's very clear certainty. And notice also if you reflect on the parable of the weeds and the net, there are also some observations about the two of them together. They sort of sit in parallel a little bit in the way in which Matthew's arranged it. Both of them contain an idea of intermingling. Okay, there are weeds among the good grain. There are sort of bad fish among the good fish. Both of them contain the idea of sorting and separating. In both cases, it's, if you like, a binary option. There's only two groups. There's good fish or bad fish. We're not grading all the fish and just ditching the ones right at the bottom. Both of the parables are end-time focused about what the kingdom of heaven will be like. Both of them are all-encompassing and both of them have very strong post-sorting consequences or implications. And in this case, it's to destruction for those who are not work, who have no work, those who have not followed the law. So let's try and pull all of our discussions together in the last three minutes. These three parables, before we get to that, actually expand and confirm our understanding of what Jesus is offering. The parables point to the great worth here, these particular three, of the kingdom. It is worth being in the kingdom of heaven. And yes, it does come at a cost. Notice what it costs the men. In this case, it costs them everything to acquire the field or acquire the pearl. So the challenge for us is the cost is actually worth listening to Jesus. So friends, give up whatever is holding you back from entering the kingdom. Jesus here is offering a kingdom which is worth far more than anything else. It's worth giving up everything for if you've been searching for it for ages or if you have just stumbled across it. The kingdom involves a final day of judgment where the good and the bad the righteous and the unrighteous, these two groups, because you're either in one or the other, will be judged by God and held to account. And yet, keep in mind, the offer to enter the kingdom of heaven is dependent upon how we respond to the words of Jesus. And so for some of us, we may have become Christians recently. 
We keep hearing, praise God, stories about people who become Christians at university. Keep praying for your non-Christian friends that they too would be included in the kingdom of heaven. For those of us who have become Christians recently, we have found intentionally or otherwise a thing of great worth. Can I encourage you to persevere? Do not be like the soil which which only enables a shallow-rooted plant to grow. When trouble or persecution arise, stick with Jesus. Keep listening to him. Do not too easily give away what you have. For those of us perhaps who may have been Christians a little bit longer, we may have failed to realise just how valuable it is being part of the kingdom of heaven. In which case this particular section of the Bible ought to refocus us and remind us of the great significance and worth of the kingdom of heaven. Can I encourage us that when the desire for wealth comes, or the worries of the world, that we heed Jesus' warning. And we heed it now, prior to that day coming. For in that day we might not be so open to listening to the word of Jesus. Friends, do not be deceived by the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth, such that your faith becomes unfruitful. Remember Jesus' words from last week. In him do we find rest from our souls. So the challenge for us today is how will we respond to the words of Jesus? I hope and pray you will respond rightly and live a life of following him because it's worth listening to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we give you great thanks for your kindness to us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your word and we ask for that there will be people who listen to it and are obedient to it. We pray this in your name. Amen.